And when I first looked at uh, the name for the podcast, I found that there was already a, a, a scientific coalition for UAP studies. So I was like, oh, okay, good. I could use UAP studies, but you guys already beat me to the punch on that one. So congrats on that. How long is uh, <laughs> how long is uh, the uh, scientific coalition been in, in play now? Well, let's let's put it this way. It started when we were still in MUFON. Uh, there were five of us that got started, and it, this was in twenty. We, we we started. We investigated a case that was the Aguadilla Puerto Rico video. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but uh, we collectively got together at the end of twenty thirteen, and we formed a team. And so uh, we called the team SCU. Actually, it started off with the Scientific Coalition for Ufology. And uh, and so the team of us investigated the case. It took us two years to investigate that video. And uh, and then uh, what we decided to do was we kind of like decided to leave MUFON and, and basically create our own organization. And so uh, that's kind of like what happened. And then we went and, you know, applied for uh, our, you know, the name and the whole thing like that and uh, getting the officially stood up. And, uh, and so we did that around the 2017, we started talking about it. And then by 2018, we got the articles of incorporation and all that wonderful stuff, that legal stuff put in place. So we've been, uh, you know, since then, uh, and we, we pretty much changed our name. We made it UAP studies because we wanted it to reflect a broader characteristic than just the UFO. Uh, and, you know, and, and now the term is kind of shifted around even more because what we when you start to talk about objects that can go through three different mediums, water, air and space, then you're it's like, you know, how does flying sound? You know, well, what about how you can't fly in the water? Right. So, uh, you know, and then, you know, you got it always into this awkward thing. It's kind of USOs, you know, uh, well, you're calling them one minute. You're calling them a USO when they pop up in the air. Then it's a UFO. And then when it goes up into space, well, what is it? You know, <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking like, you know, in the same veins as what you're saying is like, what do you keep calling it when it keeps changing in the medium? So you just call them fuckers. <laughs> fuckers are in the water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it is, it is, it is actually quite maddening. Um, it is. You know, the fact that they, yeah, you have to almost change the, the title because we're limited. So we're trying, we're limited by what we can call these things or how they maneuver, I guess. Right. But, the uh, that's what we need a, a good word that like, I, I like uap when uap came out i thought oh that's but we're a little bit different we're calling a not aerial we're calling it aerospace and if you think think about that uh if you think about that in the context of air and space which is what aerospace typically refers to but then in addition you you go to the aerospace industry and they develop uh, objects or like missiles that take off on a sub underneath the water, right? So it's starting to we equate it to also including the water because you can you can have objects that shoot out of the water, which they do. We see them going into the water, which we also have seen. And so we thought that a broad use of aerospace would would be a better term to be able to get us out of that vernacular of like a USO and you know all that other stuff. So. That's pretty much how we uh, we chose to do it. And the um, also, you were mentioning how it encompasses a lot of different things on this podcast. We cover not just the aerial phenomenon, but also like the cattle mutilations, um, abduction phenomenon. Because for me, if we have one, if we can validate that, yeah, actually, 
uh, you know, these crafts from other locations are here, that means it gives validation to the abduction phenomenon. It also gives validation to the mutilation phenomenon. You can't have one without dismissing right. the others, right? So uh, have you noticed that? Like, because that's, you've been with very true. for quite some time. Uh, you were director of investigations. You're part of the star team manager. I just need to spend like two weeks with you to like train. Like if you could do like a Rocky bit where you're like my trainer. And, uh, <laughs> just whip me up the yeah, shake. Yeah. No kidding. You're director of strategic projects and a state director for MUFON as well and uh, numerous other organizations. So you having done this for so long, being in the scientific community, have you seen a shift or have yeah. you just seen people now more openly talk about it? So Jason, I go back even beyond MUFON. So I, I got started in 1964. Uh, I was age 13. Okay. Okay. So 13 years old and I'm, and I'm basically got hooked on it and I was like living next to project blue book, you know, where it was up in, in Ohio. So I, I was, you know, out, I got interested and hooked into this thing and began at a very early age going out and actually investigating cases or trying to anyway, you know, uh, and then, um, I suddenly got to be well known in the city of Dayton uh, after I was on a TV show. And the next thing you know is uh, call Rich when you have a UFO report. Uh, even the, they didn't even bother to call Project Blue Book. They might they might have called me, but you know. But uh, but you know. So anyway, so here I am now running around the city uh, doing case investigations. Even then, and we didn't have a MUFON when I got started. There was a, there was NICAP. And there was uh, uh, APRO, which was Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and NICAP, National Investigations Committee, Committee on Aerial Phenomena, run by Donald Kehoe, and he was a retired major. And uh, both of them were trying to treat the subject very seriously, and a lot of people that were scientists had curiosity and would join up with those groups and try to help out. So it's not like we've had an... Let, let me put it this way. We haven't had a focused scientific study. We've had independent people that are doing things on their own, or somehow they get data and they go off and do their little study. Like, you know, in the early days, you might have had uh, Dr. Bruce McApee, who was doing great work with photos and, and videos, uh, who would be doing that kind of like on his own. Uh, and then you have other people that would be out uh, doing the same kind of thing. And, uh, and so, but there wasn't a collective body that was focused on scientific research to where you could actually focus on different disciplines. You know, like for example, let me give you a, a neuroscience might be, uh, have a different opinion about something than physics, right? So right. you don't have the cross meld between the two discussing what the phenomena that you're seeing might be. How does it impact my mind, my cognition of it? Uh, at the same time, what did it do from a physics, physics standpoint? So we didn't have a collective uh, focus. Well, you know, let's all kind of like look at the same thing going on. And even with Blue Book, they were so much more into just investigating them and collecting the case information than they were spending time really studying them. And they, they would rely on like Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, who they had a contract with, or they might have put something out to the RAND Corporation and had them do a little study or on under a contract. But and then you've had kind of like some scientists that have met, like Peter Sturrock. You had the Robertson panel, you know, meeting that took place where they tried to bring scientists together. 
But those were like, you know, just like a very short duration kind of an event. And then they would in the, their, and come publish a report. And so you've had over the history uh, attempts at trying to do scientific work, but you know, couple that with the fact that the technology has improved and we're able to get better. Like, for example, we're starting to get infrared video clips of objects, right? With high-grade military equipment like you had with the Nimitz. So you're getting really, really much better quality data that you can actually do something with. Um, typically, what happens is most witnesses out there are saying, well, I just happened to be out smoking a cigarette. I looked up in the sky and I saw this object go by. And that doesn't give you any data, right? I mean, so you're a case investigator. You run out to the site, you talk, and you t what are you going to do? You can just talk to the witness, record what they said. Can you do a little drawing? Great. You know, do a little drawing. What color were the lights? What color, you know, and that type thing. And you, you might try and see if there were other independent witnesses around. But nobody had a, a an iPhone. <laughs> nobody had their camera with them. They were out smoking a cigarette, walking the dog. This is old school. Yeah. You know, and, and that's it, you know. And so you're just listening to, like, somebody's testimony of what they saw. And we all know that humans are can be notoriously in error about a lot of what they see or what they interpret, right? We know that, right? So, oh, yeah. and, and you might see something, if you look at the same object, that I wouldn't have noticed. Or you might have heard something because you got better hearing than I do. So, right. you know, the problem is, you know, if you don't have multiple witnesses, then you don't get as much uh, in the way of that rich information that you really want to be able to now put together a case, you know, and, and, and if you didn't bother to go call the police department who might have had a soul, somebody that or a, a police officer that might might have saw it and you just never said anything about it because most people don't even talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you if I put out there the fact that there was this person who saw something you might get other witnesses that will come forward and help to corroborate the fact that they saw it too, you know? And so you really have to do a very broad check to be able to get more, uh, more evidence collected on a case. Uh, and that's, that's inherently, that was also a problem with project blue book. They would just sit out there and have a form filled out and then walk off and, you know, and that goes into a file and nobody did anything with it. And so it seemed like, yeah, it seemed like he did a Heineck did a lot of traveling for very little amount of results. Right. You and, know, because... and, you know, and Heineck, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the whole thing with Project Blue Book is that, you know, Heineck was kind of like the astronomer that they had on the team, the consultant to go help do some science. And he has this understanding about astronomy. But, you know, who was the metallurgist who looked at the metal? You know, who, who was the, uh, who was the uh, the another soil analysis? Where did they send the lab, and what's the lab that did that? And and was that really utilized? And yeah. and was that in the report? And we don't see that in the in many of the reports that we get. You know, and we take a look at with Project Blue Book. So, you know, that's where there's some fundamental weaknesses in that whole thing. And so, where I come back and say that we really uh, haven't really fully done a proper job of scientific study of the phenomena in my 57 years now. <laughs> so in, in, in building this team then, yeah. 
like you're talking about, you know, the, the meta materials or the, you know, then looking at the physics and maybe looking at the psychological. So what kind of, um, what kind of a think tank do you have going on right now with this coalition? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, well, we're talking about over, we have 120 people that have uh, incredible, I mean, they're, most all have advanced degrees. We got about, I would guesstimate something where around 24, 25% of us have PhDs. And, oh, wow. And, and so you're talking about, you know, scholars, if you would. Uh, we got uh, some well-known researchers uh, that are a, a part of us as well. We, uh, we've got, you know, every discipline covered. I think we've got everything from mathematics to physics to, to uh, anthropology to, you know, you name it. All of the ologies covered, you know. And, right. and we've got a tremendous number of other people who are, you know, ex-military. Some are current intel people uh, in the intelligence community. We've got uh, just a, a wealth of, of people that, that have everything from, you know, engineering to computers to you name it. We've got them all collected. And so we're all collaborating and talking to each other. They're part of project teams. We have various projects we're working on and doing studies on right now. Uh, we're doing, a, you know, we're talking about USOs a minute ago. We're doing, a, we got one study that's focused on underwater objects and, and where are they most commonly reported. We have a shape characteristic study that's going on right now, looking at history in terms of shapes. Is there anything we can deduce from that? We also have an, uh, an intent in, uh, study that's going on to see when they are near nuclear facilities and, and that type thing. What do, can you deduce anything from what they were doing? Like, why did they hang out like about a mile away? What was their intent? Uh, and so we're doing right. an intent study on that. We're also looking at the physics of the propulsion system, you know, in terms of how do they maneuver through through space and time, if you would. So we have a lot of different members that are a part of these different projects that we're working on who will then go and develop papers. And then from the papers that we published or we put together, we'll get them published in our own journal that we're putting together. And we have a peer review process to be able to share those with other people and actually have them independently validated or verified or corrected or whatever we want to say. So it's like we're trying to develop that whole scientific methodology that we have lacked in the past with the whole phenomenon. And so we're growing, we're getting attention in the United States and around the world. We've got people from around the world who are joining us uh, and uh, we're excited. Yeah, I was going to mention too. We, uh, you guys have a, a big event coming up here. Uh, yep. It's on June fifth, fifth and sixth as well. It's that's the two thousand twenty one virtual SCU Anomalous Aerospace Phenomena Conference. That and that's going to take uh, place online as well, right? It's solely online. So that's it's solely yeah, online, it, it's, right? And so yeah, for sixty bucks, you can come and and attend a two day conference where you'll get to see. I think as many as like, I think we had like about five PhDs that are going to be doing presentations. Uh, and we have a number of other people, including we're going to talk about the technology that can be used uh, to investigate. And we got Dr. Hal Putoff, who's going to be our keynote speaker. No, and we're strictly a donorship and a charity organization. We, are, we, look, we, we offer a, a link to a, you know, PayPal if somebody wants to make a donation. Uh, uh, the the proceeds we get from our conference here is what we use. Uh, we're not out to make money. We're out to get the word out. And so um, 
that's pretty much where it's been. And that's been my 57 years. It's, it's not, not charging for anything, right. you know, and it's all gratis. And so we're, we're all dedicated in that way. And we're, we're not getting, we haven't got any like major, major backers or something like that. We're just out. Uh, and we've uh, partnered with a good number of other organizations. We've partnered with uh, NARCAP. We partnered, partnered with uh, Skyhub. That's one of the technology companies that, that are going to be presenting. Uh, we've partnered with the uh, UAPX team that's going to be off the Catalina Island, you know, that want to do the study out there that Kevin Day had put together. Uh, and, and we're also with Center for UFO Studies. So we've partnered with these other players and we're looking to be able to share even amongst them, you know, uh, and make sure that we got like a, a, a you know, a, a cohesive effort at promoting science, saying that we are unified as an organization, if you would, working with others. And that's what we want to be recognized for. Now, your interest in, in UFOs, because you're saying it started at the age of 13, but have you ever had a sighting <laughs> yourself or an experience yourself that, because usually when something like that happens to somebody, it solidifies yeah. them for life as, you know, a UFO investigator, researcher, or an enthusiast, at least. And you seem to have that motivation and looking at your credentials here, which is probably the, the best credentials of any MUFON rep that I've had on here so far. Uh, I would say that you have very much a lot of interest in this. So did you ever have a sighting yourself, uh, Richard? Yeah, it's a good question, Jason. I, I, I don't often get asked that kind of question. Uh, what I've had experiences were were convincing enough. Uh, in other words, I, I know I haven't had my own uh, you know, aha moment, you know, like I wasn't, I didn't see this fantastic disc shaped object that was right in front of me or something of that nature. I have had uh, observations, which I've been able to go study and then confirm that they were really IFOs. So, I mean, I've had a lot of, you know, that kind of thing where like, for example, I saw the Google loon balloon and I thought, well, that may have been my first one, you right. know, and it was a daylight sighting and this light was kind of like up in the air and it was kind of like a, it'd go very bright and it would go dim, bright, dim. And it, I mean, it was a blue sky. And I'm saying like, what could that possibly be? And it looks like it's just staying in that one spot. Well, uh, then what happened was over the next four days, uh, well, I mean, even that same day, I mean, I had people calling me up and say, hey, did you see this? It was cylindrical and all this other wonderful stuff that was up in the air. I said, no, I didn't see the cylindrical part because I guess it was just too far away. Uh, but anyway, and I had a little video that I took with my phone of it. And I was even pulling people over. Hey, look at this. You know, I, I'm not right, alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> look at that. Right. You know, so <laughs> I was doing all those things to get that independent verification that I'm not going nuts. Right. You know, and I tried to get it on video and I was actually going into a meeting at work and I said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stick out here for a while. Anyway, it turned out to be the Google loon balloon. It was a secret project that, that Google had to be able to test balloons for uh, providing Internet to uh, areas of the, the world, basically, where they could control the balloon and have it basically stay roughly in the same spot by just merely having it go up to these tropospheric altitudes and then you know and, and then moving it around so they could pretty much stay in that general before area before starlink anyway. before starlink yeah yeah well exactly it was a precursor of that so anyway the bottom line was that i got to see one of those test things that took off here in Huntsville from the the NASA area right down here down the street 
And uh, anyway, it was, a, I guess, a, one of their balloons. And it was tracked for four days in UFO reports, by the way. I started because I was the, the, uh, the state section or the, the, the uh, SAR team manager. I was able to go and, and watch it as this cylindrical thing was being reported from here in Alabama to Tennessee, up from Tennessee up to Virginia, Virginia to Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania up into Canada. Oh, really? And the same thing over four days. And it was just moving with the wind, right? So the, the gist was that you could start to track it across multiple states and see that that cylindrical thing. And then one guy happened to get a, 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 a real good close-up using a telephoto lens or, a, or a, I think it was a telescope maybe. And, and you could clearly see it was a clear plastic cylinder to like maybe two semi-rigid types of things with some sort of sensors attached to it. And he got that. So that just helped solidify that what I thought might have been my first UFO was actually, uh, you know, an IFO. Yeah, again. but and, uh, but that see that in of itself gave you the bug because if you're able to solve that, you know, like it's because like, <laughs> it, the same similar thing happened to me, but it was a stupid flare. <laughs> I thought it was UFO, and I investigated not very long yeah. and found out it was a flare. I'm like, oh, but that means that I can identify unidentified things. If I just look into it, yeah, right. Well, so so that that incident was in 2012. But you you asked the question like, why did I get started at age yeah. 13? And at age, you know, did I see something? No, I didn't see anything. I got started uh, because I was told to do a book report in my science class on UFOs. Uh, you know, and so I. I did, uh, you know, that was on a list and I put my name next to it. I went and tried to do a little uh, study. I didn't do a very good job, by the way, and I got a D on that book, uh, that report. But um, anyway, my science teacher really told me a lot. Well, what about jet pursuits? What about this? What they fired at him? I said, what book did you read? I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get that book. Uh, and, I, and, and a couple of days later, my aunt took me to a bookstore. And I was able to actually find a, the report on unidentified flying objects by the former head of Project Blue Book, which was uh, Ruppelt. And I read that. And, and in it, it talks about jets chasing these things and shooting at them. I'm going like, that must have been the book that my teacher read, right? You know, wow, that's pretty incredible. And, uh, and so that coupled with the fact that I was like watching the evening news and Walter Cronkite got on there and talking about the 1964 Socorro, New Mexico uh, case. And that was a police officer who saw uh, basically an object and some two small beings next to it. And it shot up in the air and then took off. And when I heard that case, I'm thinking like, wow, there's really something to this. Uh, there, it, it's, you know, I, I, I've got, I, I have an interest in it. So I began clipping, doing newspaper clippings and reading books. And then soon after that, I was like at age 15, going around the city of Dayton, giving lectures on it uh, to adults, by the way, uh, on the topic. And the more and more I did that, the more and more people were coming forward and telling me about their cases. And I'm going like, you know, there's really a lot that's happening. I mean, even right here where I'm living, right? And, uh, you know, and pretty soon uh, the police department had my name and number and they were calling me about cases that they were getting. Um, and I would be go out and investigating those cases. And then I would also be out on, a, you know, occasionally it happened maybe like uh, two times 
where I was investigating the same case that Project Blue Book was. Oh, nice. And, and so I'm talking to a Blue Book, an Air Force kind of guy who's out doing that case. And uh, they actually then connected me to people back at the base, including Colonel Hector uh, Quinella. And, and, uh, and then he was the major that was uh, at the end of Project Blue Book. And then I also had other people that I would talk to, uh, Len Stringfield in Cincinnati, who had good ends with also Project Blue Book people. And I, I also got a, a phone number where I could call to get radar approach control at the base. Oh, wow. If I wanted to, you know, confirm that there was something up in the air. They would say, okay, well, we've got something. If it was classified, they wouldn't tell me. But, you know, if it was unclassed, they would. And uh, anyway, so that's the kind of ex experiences that I've had, you know. And, and then I had cases that I've investigated where, like, landing took place in Carrollton, Ohio, where I had my my aha moment, where I'm standing in the middle of a, a, a field of wheat, and there's a 70-foot in diameter perfect circular area where it's been baked two feet in the ground. And, uh, and there's no roots of the crop anymore. In fact, the crop's all gone. And then as you progressively go out in any direction from the central point of that 70 foot area, you'd, you'd see a little uh, roots underneath the ground. You'd see a little stubble above the ground. And then you'd see a rotational pattern of the wheat. And then you see puffed wheat around the entire 70 foot area. <laughs> or just like, And you're going like, well, something's heated it up. Now, how am I going to get anything to come and do that, right? If how's that farmer go out and create puffy? Yeah, yeah. How does that, you know, and then not leave tracks? How does he get to the middle of his field and not, you know, knock down something that would indicate that he's been there? It had to have come from above, you yeah. know. Well, so what? What was it? There were UFO reports around the night before. Uh, so UFO that, and I'm going like, I think I've had my aha moment. So that's that's it for me, Jason. I didn't have to see one after that. I mean, that was significant enough for me, along with just all the repeated testimonies that I heard from people. I talked with Air Force people that the Project Blue Book or or in that general area where Blue Book was that I gave a lecture on UFOs and they came up and told me their stories. And I'm going like, wow, the guy was told that he was supposed to chase him. He has a camera on the front of his aircraft and he's supposed to see if he can get him filmed. And he said he did it, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, you have those kind of things. And then I, I've worked in the military long enough and I've heard some incredible stuff, even from military people. And you, you can go around the globe on this planet and hear the same kind of stories. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. over, over decades, why decades. should I not, why should I not accept that there's something there? I mean, it's just, you'd be an idiot if you if you rejected this because you know there's millions of <laughs> of observations <laughs> of these things and if you want to go out and have uh, do a study on it then go ahead but i mean a good number of them you can explain but not all of them uh, you know they're they're just well the one with the entities or the physical traces on the ground those are the ones that i'm always interested in as a species I know that we, we, you know, whenever we go to the moon or Mars, we're really, really particular on not infesting the environment with our own junk. But it seems like these crafts don't give a crap. Like they'll come in, they'll burn the ground. They they don't care about the environmental damage that they do as they land for some reason. It's like they don't care if it hurts. Probably no worse than what we're doing to it, anyways. They're probably like, ah, they're just trying it. 
But I thought that was weird that their crafts always seem to be doing some sort of physical, if not radiation damage to the ground, as if they don't care about yeah, contaminating that, the environment. Right. And and that then begs the question of like, what's the, well, first off, what's the intent that you can think of, of something landing in the middle of a wheat field anyway? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I can't deduce what alien intent here is. Uh, you know, why do I, why, you know, if you look at the calamulation phenomena, why do I go to farm to farm to farm to farm to farm to go to do this same kind of thing, uh, if that's connected to UFO? Why, why do I make, you know, diagrams in, in some circles in, uh, if, I'm, if that's connected to it uh, in, in England, you know, uh, on the plains? Why do I pick up all these various people, if I would, and give them some sort of a medical examination, try to make them forget it, and then drop them off? What is my intent? Uh, why do I, uh, you know, do the things that are reported by these objects? And, you know, many times it just, it defies any kind of it's like alien. human logic. <laughs> it's alien to us. Human yeah. logic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm you know, I, I can't understand it. it. It is what it is. Uh, you could likely say that the nuclear cases were that they were, maybe potentially sending us a message by deactivating missiles. You know, uh, they seem to have been around a lot of nuclear sites and they hang around missile sites. Ships, no. Um, and so like Malmstrom and Loring and a whole bunch of other cases that are around the globe, uh, you know, and so, you know, what, again, is this to send us a message that they can do that? Uh, is it to say, stop playing with nukes? Is it, to, to do something else? Is it to say uh, that they are far superior to us and, hey, we can look what we can do, right. you know? And uh, so I, I don't know. And, and that's part of the curiosity of the whole thing is trying to figure that out. And, and how, did, how do you get yourself, uh, again, from human to alien intent? And I, and I don't know that I can't. And then then... You know, some people argue, and we're going to have one of our presenters, uh, uh, Dr. Michael uh, Masters, who believes that they're basically us from a maybe a potential future and, and are coming back in time. And, and, you know, for whatever reasons, maybe collecting DNA samples or because their DNA is going away or, or you know, the curiosity of what the little, what we used to look like, uh, but the fact that they are bipedal like we are, the fact that they've got like, you know, two eyes like we have uh, that are being reported, that they have a head like we have, you know, they got two arms, they got two, they got fingers, maybe more than five or whatever like that, uh, makes it very curious in the context of, of the time travel hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, Masters is actually going to come on a, the podcast next month uh, as yeah. well. And most of the people that you've worked with, Skyhub, uh, Kevin Dale, they've all been on the, the podcast. So we're getting all you guys yeah. on here. This is, 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 well, you're talking to people. I mean, a lot, a lot of people that are in actually in SCU. Yeah. I mean, they're members. Yeah. Uh, Cause Steve McDaniel is, uh, I, I, Michael Masters wants to join us. So I think he's going to be probably uh, a part of SCU as well. So you're already talking to a lot of SDU members. You might not be aware yeah, no, of it. The group, your, your group is definitely forming fast, and I'm loving it because I get to ask you guys these questions. 
<laughs> shapes. I need to talk to you about shapes. Shapes freak me out. Cubes specifically freak me out because cubes always seem like there's something weird about cubes that they're up to something weird. I, I, what have you found with the shape so far? Our study isn't complete on the, the shape uh, study that we're doing, but I mean, I, I, I can tell you this much that, I mean, uh, there's there's been every shape imaginable. I mean, it's not just cubes, it's it's dumbbells, it's pyramids, it's uh, disc shapes to round. Uh, there's oval shaped, there's egg shaped, there's a, I mean, just a lot of different shapes. What we also run across is that, you know, at night when you're looking at lights, people have a tendency to see three lights and they in their head say it's a triangle, but that doesn't mean that it's one object right. that with three lights, it could also be three objects. And so, I mean, you know, and they're just each one emitting a light and they just happen to be on the sky and in your brain, you know, our brain, human brains are, we tend to find patterns in everything, or we try to think, look for patterns. And so like, you know, there's this uh, effect called pareidolia where people look at a rock on Mars and suddenly it's a squirrel, you know, I mean, that type of thing. Yeah, I've seen those. <laughs> but, you know, we have, and we see the, you know, obviously faces in clouds and various other kinds of things as well. But anyway, I mean, the point there is that we, we, in our brain, even as young, you know, infants, and if you look and study uh, children, uh, infants and things like that, uh, they they deduce things based upon patterns, and you know that's how you can start to tell that that's your mom <laughs> that's feeding you right. uh, or something of that nature. And so you you you've got that kind of studies by you know Claude Piaget and and a number of others that that helped you deduce that patterns are very important to human beings. Um, don't have any specifics about like why shape even matters at all. So, for example, when we build things, we build a sub to for a specific shape to be able to get it through the water, and 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 that's why we build them the way we do, right? I mean, that's that's how we effectively build. Right. But that, that you can't take the sub and now stick it up in in the air and expect it to fly. It's got a different kind of propulsion. It's got a different kind of shape that it needs. You know, it doesn't have any wings to be able to lift it up. So when we humans on this planet build something, we have, we're dealing with independently the water, the air and space and devising things that work in, in, in just those mediums, you know, and then occasionally, you know, we put something together, for example, like, you know, the, uh, the shuttle aircraft was out in space, but at the same time, it's able to come back in, in land at, you know, at a base and stuff like that when we built it. It was built more like an aircraft, right. if you would, in terms of its shape. These objects, you know, I mean, if you look at it, you know, like let's say the tic-tac in the Nimitz case, it's not aerodynamically sound to have a tic-tac moving through the atmosphere, uh, let alone it potentially going into the water and, and, it, and neither in space if it were up there. But we see uh, the same object go and traverse all three of those mediums, if you would, to the point where that shape you know, it doesn't really matter. It's, it, it's like, it's got a field around it that it's, or it's creating right. to be able to help it do its propulsion systems. Cause you don't see the propulsion systems on them. It's not like, like what we build, right. you know, like a combustible type of thing that's going to propel it that way. And the propulsion goes that way. Right. We're, like, you know, the, the rocket going up, we've got to blast down. Right. 
So uh, these things don't, I mean, that, that shape has no visible kinds of propulsion that we understand around it, but yet it's able to go in any direction up and down right. and maneuver like that F-18 was that was chasing it, right? So uh, does shape really matter? And, and is there anything about that particular shape that makes it to do a certain thing that is, in other words, if I look at all cubes, if you were, are they going to be in the same geographical area uh, doing the same kind of thing? Are they going to be like, you know, like, let's say that they're doing some sort of a scan of the planet, right. you know, would I find them doing scanning kind of motions? Uh, and it's, you can't really deduce that. Again, it's like trying to interpret an alien intent versus a human intent. And I can't say that I understand it or what the purpose is of them doing some of their motions, but yet we try. Let's put it that way. Well, the propulsion, the, the propulsion is what's interesting. Um, I know a lot of people, and it depends where you sit on this one. I'm not going to put you on a hot seat here at all. I'm a big uh, Bob Lazar supporter. I believe that guy since the summer of 1989 to this very day. I think that guy's been telling the truth. And when he says that he's had his hand on that and there's perfect energy consumption, there's no such thing, just perfect energy. There's no bleeding, no nothing, no radioactive, no electromagnetic fields, nothing, just perfect energy. That's what propels their ships. We can't even figure out what the hell propels their ships, much less how their ships work. But if it is, let's say, element 115 or some sort of element or particle that we can't reproduce in large numbers right now, how, how much does that impede our study of this? Like, if we can't reproduce how the move or anything like we have a general understanding but until we can actually reproduce the effects of it scientifically and reproduce it multiple times how much does that impede our, our progress in understanding these things well in the first place you, you know potentially you could be talking to a civilization that's been around for a million years how would you know so i mean they, they've had obviously maybe uh, a lot further development than we have in terms of yeah. if if they came from some other planet if they're able to manipulate time and space, if they're able to do, and, and all those things are indicators that they can maneuver through the atmosphere and, and really not be impacted by a sonic boom, not, not having it heat up and everything else. So they're, they're, it's like they're using a capability that we haven't discovered yet. One thing about the human, uh, us humans, you know, uh, uh, and that is that when we conceive of an idea, we always attempt to try to develop it. And so uh, in the case of, you know, objects that are being reported back in the 40s and 50s that can defy gravity, what did it do? I mean, our scientists studied, you know, uh, anti-gravity and, and, and did the same type of thing because they were trying to, you know, develop it, right. you know. Uh, if you look at many of the things that were on Star Trek, we end up building them, <laughs> you know. I mean, it just humans do that. And, and we are always trying to figure out ways of doing it. So... I think it's a situation where we're maturing ourselves that direction, but we, I mean, we haven't got anything that yet that could withstand the G force of a, you know, let's say, let's say a, a drop from 20,000 feet altitude to stop above sea level in 0.78 seconds, not even one second. Yeah. 
And, you know, if you had any, I mean, we don't have materials that could withstand the G-forces. Uh, if it were, you know, doing something, you'd have to reduce your mass to be able to be zero. Mm -hmm. and, and you'd have to have some sort of a field around it somehow that's uh, not creating a sonic boom. And, you know, and, and so all that is technology that we, we don't understand. And it would take either a, a crash which there have been reports of crashes of UFOs. Several. Yeah. Uh, and then even then, I question whether we would be able to really, and uh, we took it and put it in a lab, whether we'd be able to actually get it to work or even be able to figure out the materials or the structure to it. Uh, and so I, I, I'm just saying that it's, it's pretty advanced and we haven't even begun to get there yet. Uh, I think that we'll... We'll, uh, we'll maybe get there. And that's going along with Michael Masters, you know, in terms of like, well, maybe down in the future, you know, two or 300 years from now, we'll figure it out or something like that. And then we'll want to say, let's go back and check it out. Right. Uh, but that, that may be our, uh, the kind of case. Well, as things are escalating now, it seems like more and more cases are coming out from the, the Navy having interactions with these, with these things at sea constantly and now with, you know, June just being around the corner and the first sort of Senate disclosure taking place, I'm interested in knowing if, um, you know, I think there'll be two forms of disclosure. There's our disclosure, like our species to ourselves, saying, hey, by the way, some of us know about this. And then their disclosure, whatever that's going to be. Uh, I would like to assume it would be like this telepathic, maybe global telepathic communication who knows? But I think at least us admitting that we have a problem or that we have visitors is the first step, right? Because for so long, it, it was like I was, you know, like a, a woman getting hit by her husband. Everybody knows about it, but nobody talks about it, right? Everybody's seen it, but nobody says that they've seen it, you know, because they don't want to have that open discussion. That's exactly what this happens. And this is has been happening with people for what? We know at least 76 years, but probably longer than that. And the mm -hmm. fact is, is that it's a, it's a global problem. Like you mentioned, it's, it's not just a United States problem. It's not just a, yeah. a China problem. It's an Indonesia problem. It's a Antarctica problem, for crying out loud. Some of the stuff that's coming out of there. So, yeah, we do need more, um, even 120 scientists. I mean, that's, that's a lot, a lot more than I thought was in the group which I'm already impressed, but I'm thinking like, you know, who knows in 10 years how big this group is going to be. And hopefully they're in the thousands. Well, we're hoping that too. In fact, what, we'd, what, we're, what we're attempting to do is actually get engaged with universities because we'd like to be able to leverage universities as well. Uh, and we've got a number of, uh, of our team members who are professors. And, and so maybe we can leverage labs and that type of thing to be able to do what we want to do as well. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I mean, one thing here, one second. No, I'm about to lose my. I'm about to lose my power because I became. Oh unplugged. no worries. You know what? I I can I I, I edit these anyways, so there's no worries. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I I had to get that because my battery came up and said, "Oh my God!" You know, it's battery's <laughs> gonna be gone. So anyway, I I got it fixed. Uh, so anyway, the the gist of it is that that we uh. We basically are looking to be able to team with other places to be able to help study the phenomena 
get uh, get as many uh, labs as we can to be able to say, like, if we have evidence, uh, we'd like to be able to have it professionally done and treated right, right. in terms of the lab results. Uh, and so we're, we're encouraged by that. We, we already do have connections to people with labs. Um, and that's, that's also a very good thing. So we're, we're starting to formulate that and get that connected. We're also doing something that has not been done by other UFO organizations. And that is that we are, uh, there's a part of us that are over here working to get connected with the intelligence community to be able to see if they can help pass us information that's obviously declassified, or if there are certain parts of us, like for example, I've got a clearance and others may have a clearance where we might be able to now have a connection where we could actually get something or work with something to where we can have a different kind of conversation. And so we, we don't want to, you know, we, we want to treat it respectfully and, and also work with, you know, maybe political leaders. We're, we already sent a letter up to, um, uh, to the uh, Marco Rubio and Mark Warner to be able to, to be able to get them to consider us. Um, anyway, uh, we're, we're, we're establishing communications and collaborating uh, in that way too. Nice. Uh, we, we don't, there's, there's always been that disconnect, you know, and, right. oh, you can't trust the government. Well, they, they are just as mistrustful as, of us yeah. and UFO groups, you know, and stuff like that. So we're trying to bridge that gap as well. And that's been very promising. Well, the thing is, too, is a lot of people can say, well, the, you know, don't trust the government because they always assume the government's like that. You know, the, the, like the shows they always show, like X-Files, you know, some yeah. major, you know, like, Keep it all yeah. under wraps. But the reality is, is this people like Kevin Day, Renee, uh, that yeah. was talking about, right. like, his experience shook him up so much right. that, you know, like he said, like, for years when he saw the footage when he was working, it just dropped the plates of food that he was holding. And yeah. that, those are the people. I've been saying, like, you know, disclosure is coming from those people. Like, yeah. there was nobody better than Kevin Day that day on that ship look at the radar and tell you that these things weren't normal. And the fact that he right. sent uh, Jeremy after them, you know, and the Jeremy's like, I'm engaged. I'm engaged. It's like, Holy crap. Like that in of itself is the biggest, I think one of the biggest leaks, not, well, can, you, can we say leaks? I would say at least big story that's come out in, in a long time. And I, I, you can't get higher than him. So Jason, let me, yeah. let me share some observation because it, it, it's like one of those things where, First off, I believe, you know, I, I respect what the government does. I respect what the military is, uh, tries to do. Uh, I'm, they put their pants on and stuff like that the same way I do. Uh, they're human beings. They're my neighbors. Yeah. I work with them. Um, they're just as fallible as they're, all of us. They're human. <laughs> you know, yeah. Going back to the fact that can those Navy people be misidentifying things? Yes, they can. Uh, can, can could that have been a, a different thing, that square kind of cube? Uh, that that was seen uh, could that have been just because they're calling it UAP doesn't mean that we've investigated it and it could have also been unidentified flying object it could have been a radio zon balloon could have been it could have been something else could have been an experiment but uh, the point there is that that they're going to make mistakes just like we do but at the same time we should listen to them and we need to respect their their what they're giving us and, and at the same time, they're just as puzzled by the whole phenomena as we are. Uh, I don't think that they've got any answers that, uh, that, that they can account for. 
why they don't they they certainly don't act like it. Uh, they seem to be ignoring it overall and and just letting a few people do it. Uh, I. I, I can tell you that this much at work, we don't talk about UAPs because it's not something that we're interested in. Yeah. But I think, you know, and so, you know, and so, okay, they go through and do their jobs, which are to help soldiers to do fight war zones and everything else. And they, they really could care less about UAPs because it doesn't mean anything to them. And there's none of them studying it. You know, there might be a little small group that's out there that has an interest in it. And that's what we found out with ATIP, right? They didn't, you know, the name didn't even help them to know that it was UFOs no. that they were studying no. or UAPs. And it was just, you know, just. It sounds like they were begging you know, for information. A tip. Just give me yeah. a tip. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there, I mean, Project Blue Book was known as being the UFO thing, but you didn't, I mean, a tip wasn't, it was doing it very quietly and uh, non-discreetly and, uh, you know, and so. That's kind of like what I'm seeing going on. I mean, in other governments around the planet, you know, the UK had their uh, their study. Uh, you've had the Belgian wave. Uh, the Belgians did it. Chile, the Chileans have studied them. Canada. Uh, you know, the Russians have, have gone in and investigated them. I mean, there's a lot of uh, other governments and militaries who have, are trying to do the same thing to figure them out, you know, and can't. Well, the thing is, too, because we have all these stories of since, like, you know, 1947 of all these military personnel or installations have had UAP-related incidences. And I find it funny that we we train the Army, the Navy, the Air Force for battle against other humans. But shouldn't we start introducing them to the fact that they might have some interactions with entities of unknown origins at this point? Because, you know, well, it's too frequent now. It's too frequent. So it is. And then, but we also, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just being very serious with oh, you up please, front. Oh, please, please, yeah. From a, from a scientific standpoint, we don't even know that these are other entities from another planet. Right. And let me let me paraphrase with you that, that, um, that number one, what are we doing? We're sending robots to Mars. We're sending a lot of things out in space that are not humans. I mean, necessarily, that are going to Mars. We're sending the uh, uh, other kind of craft that are collecting information and sending it back to us. So some of these objects could be just nothing more than like drones or surveillance drones doing some sort of like looking around, collecting information and sending it back. Right. We don't we don't necessarily believe that every uh, UAP is piloted by, I mean, by someone. You could have artificial intelligence kind of like things going on where they're automatically doing their own thing in a remote way. I mean, an intelligent way, artificial intelligence. So, and then are the beings that are reported, are they really organic or are they robotic? You know, we don't, uh, in the abduction phenomena, are they really that? Uh, We don't know. We believe that they might be because they, uh, they, but then, you know, you hear the reports of where they're doing these, like in, inserting something in the eye and they don't seem to have any kind of like, you know, concern about your, your wellness, your safety. Yeah. Are you feeling okay? Yeah. Are you, not, you, have, you know, no, I don't, I, I'm just, just going to inject this. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, yeah. <laughs> they don't even, you know, yeah. they don't even have anything like that. Yeah. They, so they seem to be, so, and then let me also clarify that there could be m- multiple things like this going on. It, it's not just one, one phenomena that has one origin. It could be multiple types of things that are being seen. 
And we're just all in our brains trying to classify and say, well, that's one of those, and that's one of those, but they may be all different. And they may be, you know, and so we don't know that either. Uh, we, we just can't, we can't say for certain at this point. It's not like the, the object when it was shooting off, we, we, we took a picture of the, the back end, the bumper had a license plate that said, oh, this is one's from Oregon. You know, this one's from, or the planet, whatever. We, <laughs> yeah. And then, then, you know, let's, let's just also talk about the fact that when we talked about earlier, we are developing craft out there that are able to do hypersonics. We are also developing objects out there that are triangular shaped, right? Mm -hmm. The F-117. You know, we have, TR3B. we're trying to get to that point. Do you think that the Russians and, and other countries might not also be trying to do that? And then also we're developing drones. Well, they're developing drones. So is the observation of, for example, what the Navy saw in that drone encounter that they had off the coast recently, were those real drones from some place here on Earth and another, uh, another like country testing those things out and, uh, and to see our response? We don't know. But that could be, that's possible. So we don't jump automatically to aliens yet. And let me also clarify that if you take a look at the cases of the objects popping in and out of water uh, and how frequently that, that happens, you might wanna say that, that maybe that there's a race underneath the ocean because three quarters of the planet is ocean and we should call the planet Earth, maybe the planet water instead, uh, that it's very conceivable that they could be living underneath the planet and they're not doing interspace travel at this moment. And they're just popping up out of the water, coming and doing what they're doing and then hopping back in the water. So that's just as much a plausibility. We just don't know. And, and so that's why we need to do more studies of the phenomena by, you know, people who can do studies. I, it, and I love hearing all those angles as well, because those are all, genuine things that we have to to look at we don't know what this phenomenon is about i had people right. that were on um that were from the christian church and it talked about the people in the church are being abducted and how they view their abduction as being spiritual not aliens they think these are demons right. taken yeah. at night and i i decided i was going to cover it because we don't know what this is until we do I often like to think, especially with this phenomenon, we have to apply a little bit of philosophy. And one philosophy that I tried to implement in this is possibility versus probability. And, you know, when somebody says, well, uh, you know, let's say the, the triangles are, are in the water, it's probably, let's say, the Russians. Is it possible? Yes. But is it probable that the Russians don't have that technology and it's something else? You know what I mean? Like, is it possible? Yes. But in practicality, it wouldn't make any sense. Like the, the fact when they were talking about the Navy pilots seeing this black triangle emerge out of the ocean and then shoot up into the atmosphere. Um, if I'm a fighter pilot and I'm the, the best trained person in the sky and I see that, I'm crapping my pants, right? Because that thing was under the water. It flew in the sky exactly like me, but beat my technology, beat my aerodynamics, even though it's like shaped like a Dorito, and it flew up you know, like directly in space without any sonic booms or anything like that. Obviously, superiority is technologically, uh, they have the advantage. <laughs> it's safe enough to assume that. 
my worry is is that our nature is always to like you know we're very fearful and we always fire and shoot first rather than reason things out and when i hear about like the tic tacs or similar drones near the ships at sea and they're just hovering there for hours no sound no energy uh distribution that anybody can hear i mean they're looking at they're on the ship they have the best technology to look at these things and they can't make them out right now i'm just assuming if i was china russia or a powerful country i would stick a flag on that thing so large that the americans could see look <laughs> we come close to you right there was no markings no nothing no wings no exhaust these things just and it's peaceful right it's like just they're hovering above our ships going like look we this is the best technology you have like we could sink you right now if we wanted to but we don't and that's the way I see it. I see it as it's, it's this peaceful thing. We keep looking, well, what's the threat value? What's the threat aspect? What if the threat is us? What if the threat is us shooting without knowing all the facts first? Because we're afraid of what this is. That's my biggest fear is doing something well, stupid, which I think we might have well, had we, in, the bat, in the past. <laughs> we have done in the past. Yeah. We fired at them. We shot at them. Uh, and there's new uh, again, again going back to that book that I picked up. Uh, I told you in Dayton, Ohio, the report on unidentified flying objects. Yeah. We fired at them. Uh, in fact, the order there was actually an order that was changed by the military to stop shooting at them. Uh, okay, so I mean, we actually, you know, we we actually intended to shoot at them, and, and we have done that. If you look at the uh, the 1941. Uh, case uh in was it san francisco that uh, off the coast where you see that like you know there, there's been a, all these spotlights shining up at the object yes uh, well that was being shot at by that was being shot at by a whole bunch of ammunition uh, guns on the ground six hours yeah, yeah. exactly six well hours. i mean we were firing yeah. Yeah. so we fired at the thing and it yeah. didn't apparently knock out anything out of the sky yeah we've we've done it i'm sure that other countries have done it as well where we fired at them or we attempted to fire at them. If you look at the Tehran case uh, in 1976, I believe, uh, the Tehran incident, you know, that was where uh, uh, two F-4s attempted to go after it. They both attempted to fire. They couldn't fire. They couldn't, uh, their, their navigation went out. Uh, they had to turn back away from the object. I mean, so there's been uh, other kinds of things like that where we've attempted to do that and it didn't work. Um, and so, so why do you fire at them? I mean, yeah. what, what good is that going to be? Uh, what Do you think you're going to knock them out of the sky or something like that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we just haven't had any luck with that over, over the long period, the haul. And so now you're dealing with somebody that has got way far superiority than what we've got uh, and is able to do things that we can't do. And we have nothing to be able to do anything to them. Yeah. So if they want to outrun us, they can. And so going back to the, the question about threat, we really don't know what they are. So how do we deduce what their purpose is? Yeah. What, what if their purpose is threatening? How do you know? We're just worried about know. being cortez That's the only thing. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's the only so, thing. We just don't want that to happen. But if it was to happen, it would have happened by now. Right, they wouldn't wait this long. It's not like they need right. to make a plan. 
Like the, yeah. they have the advantage. They could have done it already. I, I think that. Well, and exactly. I, I believe that that's the case too. I mean, I, I just think that in fact, I think what we're dealing with more as more of a phenomena that's been on this planet probably longer than we have. Yeah. <laughs> we're know? just waking I mean, up to it. Yeah. Every recorded, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the history of the planet is filled with, you know, observations of these things and written down in written records, uh, you know, and so, so I, I go back to the fact that we've had a relationship with them for a very, very long time. Uh, and it seems like that they're just more curious than they are harmful, if you would. Uh, in fact, if you looked at it where we did fire at them, they didn't turn out and knock us out of the sky. <laughs> so they didn't respond. I mean, they didn't come back and shoot us out because we were trying to fire at them. I, I don't think that that was necessarily, if I could say I understood alien intent, yeah. that that's what they were wanting to do. Well, see, my, uh, and, no, and, and I'm just going to say that, you know, so, but let me go back to the point where, uh, you know, I, I, I prefaced earlier on that there's probably been a lot of cases of crashes. And what do we do with crashes? We would collect the crash debris. We would try to figure out, re-engineer it. We would see if we can figure out how to fly it. And we might use it to our advantage and, and start flying it, right? How do we know that the Russians haven't had a crash and picked one up? How do we know that the Chinese haven't had a crash and are picked one up? And they are an adversary. And how do we know that they're not wanting to fly that craft? Or operated, right. uh, and we don't. So, because again, we're ignorant about this whole thing, we can't leave that hypothesis off the table. We have to study it equally, right? right? And and so that's why we don't jump up and say, "Well, they're alien," or whatever, because we don't know. Uh, and and if you want to look at the phenomena of abductions, you know, I mean, there's that. In terms of studying and science, that's as perplexing and, and hard to study as is the UFO phenomena. And I'm saying that we want to put them together when they could be those spiritual beings that you were talking about, and we don't know it. And, and so those might be spiritual encounters because we don't often see, there are a few cases where you have some sort of physical evidence of, of it and the abduction, uh, you know, you, you could argue that there's the phys physical evidence that, that helps you to support that there was an object that was actually there right. at the time of the abduction. And, and so there's very few of those cases. But, you know, you've got a lot of people that will contact me or contact other investigators and they show you a photograph of their arm and it's got a big lump on it and say, look, I've got, I've got, you know, I've got something underneath my arm and alien implants down there. Right. right. Uh, we also have people that are psychotic and schizophrenic that have mental conditions yeah. that are reporting the fact that they're hearing voices and seeing things and they're entering into their bodies and the beings and stuff like that. Well, do you think that the, a case investigator is really doing a, a good job of being able to deduce the medical condition in the arm? At the same time, also be able to deal with the mind yeah. and our psychologists? And the answer is no. So we don't do a very good job of studying the abduction cases. We're trying to get there. And I think that there's a few people that are trying to incorporate scientists and everything else uh, into that. And so it's very undisciplined. And we don't know how to deduce whether this is a mental state, whether this is like you might, like you said, a spiritual kind of experience. Right or a medical kind of thing. 
And so I, we don't, we have all those things to figure out about abductions before we jump and even say that they're connected. Well, yeah, you know, because I, I do want to specialize in abductions. That's like my main area where I do want to focus on. I'd like to be like yeah. a general practitioner of ufology, if you will, like know a little bit of everything, but focus primarily with the abductees for my work. What I find familiar, though, is that they'll always mention how the inside of the ships, everything runs into each other like it's 3D printed, right? Like the, the ground will mold into the table, like everything's molded. And it seems like that has a crucial part to play with how the energy of the ship is distributed like there could be no cracks everything's just like a bench will come out of the wall like it's molded out of it like 3d printed and i thought well isn't that cool that they explain that that there's always like a medical room that means that these ships are freaking freaking built sorry i'm <clears throat> bad with my language uh to come here and do medical exams the ships are built around that concept right so when we're saying, okay, we see UFOs and you hear about abductees and the abductees are telling you, look, there, there's actual rooms in there. They'll have like two different rooms, like Betty and Barney were separated in two different rooms, right? So they, they build these crafts to come here and to do stuff with us. It's not like this is new to them. It's just new to us. So let me, let me also clarify that, that, you know, going back to the abduction phenomena and, and, and that is that those characteristics... So it seems to be like, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I, I take walks around my neighborhood all the night and, you know, and, and I don't see the object that's, you know, it's taking the beings out of their bedrooms and, and putting them into the craft, right? I don't, I don't see that. And then you have the reports by the people aboard the craft who are talking about multiple rooms. And then you, you find out that the good number of the UFO reports are maybe like only as big as 40 foot in diameter. Yeah. So how do you get how do you get you know all those big expansive rooms out of something that's forty foot in diameter uh, if they're doing it there and then then so you have to question well were they transferred to another ship that was bigger well where are those, where are the reports of those bigger ships if you would uh, and I, and, I, and where are those ones where there's multiple rooms and hangars and all kinds of other things and and where are they at. And then, so are you really dealing with a real phenomena or are you dealing with something that, again, we don't know? I mean, is this a, a manipulation of the mind? Is it a manipulation of, uh, of time and space? But see, I mean, then, then again, we would have to question. So if you look at, let's say, Travis Walton. and yeah, what about, yeah, yeah, Take a look at that. Yeah, I mean, he was he saw, physically missing for, for five days, right? Yeah, but I mean, space time, it could have been gone. I mean, we don't oh, understand I that. I get you. But, you know, you, you're dealing with space and time. Take a look at somebody that has an NDE experience. You know what NDEs near are? Death near death experiences, right? Okay. And in, well, I mean, in those encounters, you, you, you have a situation where time and space doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they are off somewhere, <clears throat> excuse me, they seemingly think that the whole day has gone by and they've had conversations with people when they've only been gone out of their body like maybe 15 minutes. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to get to you is, and, and think about that in the context of the near-death experience. These people are going up and meeting other beings, allegedly seeing lights and various other kinds of things, and then they come back to their body and they're able to do that. Well, how does the mind do that? Uh, how does it actually, you know, create that uh, 
kind of an effect. Are they really transported somewhere else? I don't know. But my point is, it doesn't have to be a UFO spaceship that they're going into to have that experience and that, that I can physically see in this space and in this time. It could be something that's a whole different other kind of thing that's going on where, uh, you know, you have a, a condition to where you have like an NDE if you, an event or something like that. And you can astrally project out of your body and you can go through materials. And those people in NDEs also say that they can look through the floor and through the ceiling. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, how, how do we deduce what that phenomena is? It's well documented and people are seeing it. And now you put that in the context of the abduction phenomena. And how do we know that it's a real kind of an event or it's all a, a, a mind manipulation? We don't. I don't know. Right. Uh, I, I can say to you that if I have, uh, you know, that, that commonality you talked about, that, that they're on a table. Well, not all of them have a table, you know, a Pascagoula, they were on a chair, yeah. you know, or something like that, yeah. you know, in uh, others, they, they weren't on a table. Uh, there's other kinds of ways of looking at that. There's not a consistency necessarily there. Uh, you know, you talked about the round kind of like things. I will also point out to you, and this is very true, that we all have seen TV and movie shows. Oh, yeah. And that does have a mental impact on us. Right. It's in our memories. And we do connect that. So if we have this experience, are we using that? And I'm saying that there's, there's just as much an effect from watching shows on television uh, to people, humans, and the human mind that we don't necessarily, we need to consider in that, right? right. No, I've, you know, the phenomenon is not just the the sightings for me. It's always been with the abductees because I thought, like, if it, you know, find out why they're here, talk to the abductees. You know, what did they do? I don't know. They just did a bunch of stuff, and this is what happened. We're talking about whether or not they're um, biological or not. Well, there's a lot, or seems to be a lot of reproduction-themed things, such as having to have sex with an alien, like some people claim to have to have intercourse, or that not- hybrid... Not all aliens. Okay, not all of them. Go no. back. Yeah, not all of so, them. So let me yeah. so let me clarify. Please take a look at the Kelly Hopkinsville in the fifties. Yeah, that one's creepy. <laughs> and, and now you got these little beings. They're like you know they're being shot at, and they said that they sounded metallic when the the things were hitting them. Yeah. They sounded metallic, like okay. Then you take a look at the uh, you know the the Charlie Hicks and Calvin Parker kind of experience. That was like, almost like the mummy. <laughs> you know, that's not, not any, it was like, you know, almost eight foot tall or something like that. It was huge. And, and, and it had nothing that resembled a gray. Yeah. Okay. So how much have we been impacted by television also to create a mythology around what they are supposed to look like? Because I'm telling you, that after the Betty and Barney Hill, it seemed like, you know, the description of aliens prior to that were not at all yeah. like what happened. Then Betty and Barney Hill case, which got, you know, famous, it was made into a movie and, and all kinds of other things. Suddenly from there on after, you start to see this one type of being, you know, I'm going like, well, again, you know, what, what is that about? Uh, why is it that the UFOs back in the late 1800s looked like, airships versus flying saucers social conditioning right yeah bingo i mean so what are are we 
is this a mental manipulation? I mean, if you would, I mean, how do we know that that we're not being led down some sort of a merry path? Well, it's a, and we, yeah, same thing with right. leprechauns, you know, little tiny guys yeah. that come down from these bright <laughs> lights, <laughs> right? which was a right. rainbow. They interpret it to a rainbow. But I mean, like you could go back, you know, even in Australia, they have that uh, cave, the Aboriginal cave that dates back about 5,000 years. It's grays. They painted grays on the ceiling. There's like 20 of them. You see them, big heads, big black eyes, tiny little mouth, 5,000 years old. And this is it. So this is where Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia and various other things has some interest in this whole phenomenon because it, it, you know, it's, are we, is this cognition? Is this as a consciousness kind of thing? Are we being manipulated in that kind of context uh, or what? Uh, and, and then we get into the argument, well, is it a real phenomena in the sense that the phenomena actually leaves, like you pointed out, you have an interest in traces, right? Yeah. Or you have a we have a crash. Something actually we picked up debris that would suggest that it's nuts and bolts, right? Yeah. And you know that there was like something sitting in the middle of the, uh, that of that wheat crop that I talked about that baked it two feet in the ground. That would indicate something physical, right? Yeah. Certainly wasn't my mind being manipulated. Did you ever so, get that soil um, sampled? Yeah, I mean the samples were collected. We found microwave radiation and stuff like oh, that. No way. So you 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 get that kind of thing and you. And so it's a really, you know, it's a very strange phenomenon. And anyone who's spent their time looking into it, you know, and really dedicated, and have gone out like I have, like, and, and talked with, you know, thousands of cases or something like that, they, 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 and talk firsthand with witnesses, as opposed to reading it in a book or whatever like that you're doing, that you start to really get an idea of the, the human mind and how incredible it is. Yeah. Number one, you also find out about some of the faults of the human mind. <laughs> and you, you also find out that, you know, I, I happen to study psychology and, and all that stuff like that. Because let me tell you, when I did that eighth grade science report, it hooked me into science because I had I had to know the unknown or what, what it could be as opposed to what it, you know. Oh, really? I had to eliminate all those like knowns, you know. And uh and so that's pretty much where I was at. I was hooked into the science because I was trying to figure out, well, what, how does this make sense? And psychology is, you know, you know, an interest of mine as well. And, you know, you can, you can have and deduce people in hypnosis to be able to have them and suggest to them that they're seeing something that's totally false and they will believe it. You know, so yeah. false memories can be planted into people uh, and, so the mind is an amazing thing in that regard. I mean, it's just like the phantom arm effect. You know, you lose your arm and you, you want to scratch your hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's not there. I mean, you know, wait a minute, you know. So we we don't really know all, a lot of yet about even about our own world in the brain, in the consciousness. Yeah, we're uh, atoms contemplating atoms, right? We're, yeah. the, we're the universe exactly. trying to figure ourselves out. I mean, we're created by yeah, the universe. And Jason, right? Yeah, Jason. In the quantum, in the quantum world, you're made of nothing. Yeah, yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> mostly space. No... Mostly space. Yeah, That's exactly. all we are. So, exactly. for yourself, Richard, are you speaking at this uh, explore at uh, uh, this um, uh, event in June? Are you speaking at all? Um, well, I'm the moderator for it, so you're going to see me introducing all of the presenters. I'm also going to be controlling the uh, the if you would the uh, the question and answer period afterward. Uh, I, I'm the one that's putting the entire event together, if you would, from a virtual standpoint. 
So I had to coordinate and integrate six different packages to be able to make it happen. So um, that must have been challenging I, for I'm, you this year, eh? Because that's all virtual. Yeah, now. yeah, that that must have been different. Very definitely. Yeah. I, I, you know, we had a physical one two years ago, and then of course last year we had to cancel it because of COVID. Right. Um, and uh, and so now we're we're putting that with some of the same players and some new ones together for the the conference in June. Uh, so you'll be able to see some incredible discussions about UAPs. If you have an interest in this topic, I don't know why you're not going to be there because it's going to be covering a, a lot of stuff, everything from technology to the intelligence community aspects and how they treat it um, to discussing about time travel, to be discussing about, you know, just statistical correlations, the Fermi paradox and a whole bunch of other things. I want to make sure that I post up all the links um, to the Explorer SCU, of course, .org and uh, the, or the event taking place here in June. And of course, anything that you have promo wise, pass it on to me. I'll forward it right to the uh, UAP stuff on uh, Twitter and Facebook. You are on Twitter and Facebook as well. There's no Instagram yet, as far as I can tell. For no, actually, I do have an Instagram account as well. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah. So, okay, so definitely look it up for any uh, investigators listening to this right now. Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, so let's say somebody is an investigator in Norway, because I'm getting a lot of listeners in Norway now. Uh, if somebody in Norway gets some sort of debris or something and they want to get in touch with you, do they just go to the website and get in touch with you guys there? Yeah, we have a contact. Uh, uh, if you, you go up on the website, the explorescu.org, uh, and there might have a, like three little little dots over there because we got some things up there and they can't display them all, but go over there and click on that. And there's a contact us page. So you'd barely go, you just go over there. We have it automatically goes to our website. We can take a look at it, find out who it really belongs to and then pass it off to them and then they can handle it. So if you want to get a hold of me, you can go that way and, and just, you know, say, uh, I want to talk to Rich Hoffman or something like that. And then I would follow up and just like we did for the podcast, by the way, I think uh, you, you know, and so we got back to you and said, hey, let's, you know, we're here. And uh, so somebody could do that without any problem. Well, personally, I, I, you know, you guys are always, the door is always welcome to you guys on this podcast. Actually, if you want to use it as much as you want to, go ahead. Um, because this is what Thank this you. podcast is for, is to give you guys a, a place to speak. Uh, and to talk about this openly with other investigators and scientists alike. And uh, I, I'm just totally blown away by the generosity of this community and even, you know, people like yourselves that are giving me the, the, the time uh, to cover these topics. And, and I'm, I'm like I said, I'm blown away when people are like, you know, how's it going? I'm like, way better than I thought it was going to go. Like, I can't believe how great this community is. And I, I hope once this all settles down with the COVID that, if there is some sort of event somewhere that I get to meet some of you guys face to face, because uh, yeah, I've really grown to to learn a lot more about this subject in the last year than I've ever done, and the twenty years previous to this, and that's just all thanks to you guys. Well, and thanks to you because uh, we need people that will help to get the word out. We need young people like yourself. I'm, I'm you're not as old as I am, and I, I'm. I'm at some point, I'm going to actually do the retirement thing. What? But we need, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like I'm going to, you know, my wife keeps saying, are you going to retire sometime too? And no, I'm still working and I'm you know, going to be 70 in September. So it's like, you know, no, I'm still going to keep working and, you know, keep going as long as I've got a brain that I can still think. But 
anyway, the point is that we need to, this is multi-generational too. And, and hopefully we can pass on what we've learned in our generation onto you and you can help pass that on to others that they need to really, really study this thing and, and treat it very seriously because it, it's worthy of study. Um, and so I appreciate you just as much as you might be saying, you know, you appreciate me. I appreciate you and thank you for doing this.